Diverse voices. Unique sound. Not the same old thing. Different, different. This is NOCO FM. Hi, everyone. This is Adrian with Feminist Hot Dog and a little bit of laryngitis. Please excuse my voice. But I felt like I needed to say a few words before this week's episode because my guest, my wonderful guest, Mawia Patton, uh, works for an organization that advocates for reproductive justice here in Alabama. And reproductive justice is one of the major themes of the show. It was recorded several weeks ago, actually, before the Georgia, Alabama, and now Missouri bills were passed. And now that they have passed and the threat to Roe versus Wade appears to be becoming more real by the day, I want to urge listeners not to assume that this doesn't affect you if you don't live in the South or in in some of these affected states. And please support people on the ground doing the work and fighting for reproductive justice in these states. And there are a couple of names that I wanted to mention. One is the powerhouse of Montgomery, and the powerhouse is literally a house right next door to the reproductive health clinic, and they run the escort service, the pro-choice clinic escort service, and they also provide a refuge for clinic patients and their the folks who accompany them and their kids because there is such an aggressive presence of anti-abortion protesters outside of that clinic, and so the powerhouse provides a place for them to go and provide some some protection for them so that they don't have to be harassed or less harassed. The Yellow Hammer Fund, it is a fund for folks who can't afford their abortions. And then URGE is the organization that Mawia works for, or excuse me, she used to work for. She is um, no longer with them. They do great, very youth-focused work on reproductive justice in a variety of states, including Alabama. And then, of course, the ACLU of Alabama, which is bringing the suit against the state. So... And the other thing I just wanted to say is I know it's been a very difficult week for many people who care about these issues and it feels um, very triggering to hear words like rape and incest thrown around as often as they have been and also just to feel like your rights are under attack and they are. So I just want to encourage everyone to take good care of themselves and don't be afraid to look for good news glimmering amongst the piles of bad news because there is good news out there and we need to celebrate it and we need to rely on our communities to help us get through these times. So I hope that you find Feminist Hot Dog to be a a supportive voice and resource for you during this time. That's the whole origin of the show and, and what we are here to do. So thank you so much for listening. And now here's the show. Please don't go. I need you so I... Hi, everyone. Welcome to Feminist Hot Dog, the news, humor, and cultural survival podcast by, for, and about women and people of all genders who experience sexism. So this is obviously a feminist podcast, um, although I interpret that pretty broadly, as those of you who listen already know. Sometimes on the show, we kind of go right to downtown, downtown feminist town, and sometimes we sort of wander around in the woods, in the fields, on the outskirts, in the suburbs of feminist town. Um, Because I'm someone who thinks that feminism should be celebrated in all areas of life, not just the areas that are kind of official feminist topics. Um, But there are some topics that dwell right in the heart um, of what we think of as um, intersectional feminism in particular. And I don't 
you know, I don't really know where that town metaphor came from, but um, I'm just going to go with it. (laughs) So reproductive rights and justice is definitely one of those. And we haven't actually talked about that as much as I might have thought on this podcast, which is why I'm very, very excited to um, welcome my guest today, someone that I've just met for the first time, Maria Patton. Mm -hmm. And I said it right. Yes. Maybe say it one more time with a little more emphasis on the W. You kind of, Mawia. Mawia. Yep. Oh, I think I kind of like turned it into like an R. Mawia. Yep. All right. Well, thank you for coming and being on my podcast. I really, really appreciate it. So nice to meet you. Yeah, it's great to meet you too. Um, So, you know, like I said, we haven't talked much about reproductive justice on the show, but we have talked about reproductive health quite a bit. And um, I would just like to hear a little bit from you about where you work right now and your role and what brought you to this work. Yeah, absolutely. So I currently work for an organization called URGE, which stands for Unite for Reproductive and Gender Equity. They are a national, multiracial, youth-focused reproductive justice organization based out of D.C., but we're active in five states in the South and the Midwest. And those states are Alabama, Georgia, Texas, Kansas, and Ohio. But the work that URGE does, as I said, is focused on um, reproductive justice. So I first came to... The way that I came to reproductive justice work um, was through social work. Um, So when in 2012, I moved from Southern California, I lived in San Diego, I moved to North Carolina to do a master's in social work at UNC Chapel Hill. And uh, in our program, we had field placements, essentially like internships for both our first and our second year. And my first year, I was placed with a... um, a reproductive health program, really. So it was sexual health education for um, young girls of color. So middle school girls, mostly Latinx or Latina and black girls. Um, And I had never worked with that particular age group. I had done work with other, like maybe high school, maybe younger than that, mostly high school. Um, And I had never done sex education. And so Mm. I was super nervous and I just had a blast. I just thought it was super fun. I um, I think this is true for a lot of people who do social change work of any kind, but especially social work. Like they talk about this like wounded healer metaphor of like you're kind of um, working to be the presence that you wish that you had when you were younger. Mm. So I did not have a space to talk about um, sex in an open or sex or sexuality in like really an open environment. And so it was just really great to talk with like 12 and 13 year old girls. And some of them were, you know, in had encounters where they were thinking about sexuality and some of them, it was like the furthest thing from their mind, but it was just really valuable to um, make sure that they were equipped, you know, and that they like were equipped with information that they could share with their friends. Um, So that was kind of how I got into reproductive health and um, through different jobs that I had, I became acquainted with the reproductive justice framework, Mm -hmm. um, which is distinct from reproductive health or reproductive rights. Um, I can I can do the spiel of like what is reproductive justice if well, that's helpful. Well, in right? fact, can... my very next question for you was: Could you tell us the difference between reproductive rights and reproductive justice? So I would be, you are right on cue. I would be happy to. Um, yeah. So the the best thing about reproductive justice is that it is a movement um, created by and for women of color. Um, you know, with the reproductive rights movement, I, I'm not like I'm a. 
I'm not like an academic feminist. So I don't remember if this was the first, second or third wave, but like the whole my body, my choice thing, Mm -hmm. right? Of like, we want to work outside the home and we want to be able to have access to abortion. And women of color are like, well, I've been working outside the home literally for centuries, Mm -hmm. often without pay. Um, You know, I am fighting for the right to parent rather than the right to choose to have an abortion. You know, like um, there's histories of black, indigenous, Latino women all being forcibly sterilized without their consent Mm -hmm. um, up until like the 90s, I think, in L.A. Um, You know, so basically women of color were like, this does not reflect our experience. Um, And so they created the reproductive justice movement. um, and you, you know, Sister Song has kind of like the quintessential. Sister Song is a reproductive justice organization out of Atlanta, um, and so if you're interested in like seeing a paper definition of reproductive justice, they're a good one to look at. Um, but basically, um, reproductive justice is concerned with the most marginalized communities. Mm-hmm. Um, so that means often means women of color, low income folks, LGBTQ communities. Um, and we're not just talking about access to abortion, but we're talking about um, You know, do people have bodily autonomy in every sense of the word? Do people have freedom of movement? You know, so if um, if if migration is restricted or if I am an immigrant who's worried that I'm going to be deported and that's going to Mm. tear my family apart, like that's a reproductive justice issue. Um, So not just talking about people's ability to reproduce, but after they've begun to create the families that they want to create, can they parent those families in safe and healthy environments and with dignity? That is an awesome answer. And I've actually never, I, I don't think I've ever understood it quite in that way before. So thank you so much for um, for sharing that. Yeah. What are some of the most urgent issues that you are working on right now in um, with urge? Yeah. Urgent. Urge, urgence. I see what you did yeah. there. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, it's a, it's a running joke inside our organization. I, I can well imagine. I didn't even mean to make that a joke, urgent but I was update. like, oh. Yeah. Um, I mean, so here in Alabama, uh, I'm like sighing because, um, so the, the two issues that urge has focused on the most in Alabama in the past couple of years are comprehensive sex education Mm -hmm. and, um, and abortion access. So, and both of those are, are pretty urgent issues. Um, you know, like I, like I said, this reproductive justice framework is very broad and comprehensive and encompasses a lot of different issues. And it touches economic justice. It touches environmental justice. And when our rights to bodily autonomy are under threat, we kind of have to, like, go back to the basics of, um, you know, some of those reproductive rights battles. Um, and so for for Alabama, I think comprehensive sex education is, like, the foundation upon which so many other reproductive rights and justice battles are like built. Um, So comprehensive sex education is not um, required in the state of Alabama. It's like optional to teach it, which is the case in some other states as well. Um, If you do choose to teach um, sex ed, um, there's definitely an overemphasis on abstinence. Mm. Um, And (laughs) the like this is literally the line it says something like um you are supposed to teach that from a public health perspective homosexuality is illegal and immoral um which doesn't have anything to do with public health and also is just really shitty Uh, do you swear on your podcast oh fuck yeah okay great (laughs) i feel more at home now (laughs) um yeah so sex education is one and i'm i'm really not one for like let's 
figure out a way to meet in the middle and find a compromise between. But but if that's what you're into, then, you know, theoretically, um, conservatives, Republicans, whoever, um, who are interested in reducing the unplanned pregnancy rate should be able to get behind um, this idea of comp sex ed, because theoretically, if we improve sex ed, we reduce the rate of unplanned pregnancies, we reduce the abortion rate, etc. So that's one thing that's really important and and not just for reducing unplanned pregnancies, but I think um, to me, comprehensive sex ed includes it includes talking about like your options if you do get pregnant. Mm -hmm. It includes um, talking about like not just straight sex, right? Not just like penis and vagina sex, but there's all kinds of other sex that people have and. Um, people need to know what the risks are for those and people need to know um, how to practice consent. People need to know if they how to like gauge like, do I feel safe and respected physically, emotionally, sexually in my relationship? Like I didn't learn any of those things. Yeah. I grew up in California Um but I've I've seen some programs, you know, one of the programs that I worked with in North Carolina, um, not the one I was mentioning before, but a different one that I worked at later, um, did a really great job of providing young people with that information. So, um, well, and some of those concepts are things that you can be teaching in kindergarten. I mean, consent yeah. and feeling respected. I mean, those are absolutely those are skills we can be language we can be building on way before kids are, you know, thinking about, you know, getting into a sexual relationship, which of course would just benefit them in the future. And even that seems controversial in many, many um, pockets of the country, which I just can't quite wrap my mind around. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Well, oh, more urgent issues. Oh, yeah. So then the other urgent issue is, is abortion access. Now in 2019, there's like a slew of anti-abortion bill. I mean, there always is, but like really right now there's been so many six week bans, what they call a heartbeat bill, you know, or yeah, they call them heartbeat bills. Like as soon as there's a heartbeat, which is detectable around six weeks, um, which is not really a heart. It's like a cluster of cells that has started to fire like electricity and synchronicity and whatever. Um, So there's a lot of six week bans. Alabama, of course, was like, we can do better. We can. And by better, I mean, terrible. (laughs) So much worse. So much worse. Um, And have introduced in both houses of the legislature, um, like an outright ban that like from the moment that conception is detectable, it is illegal to provide or attempt to provide an abortion, um, which would criminalize any and all providers could potentially criminalize people who like help a person who's pregnant get to a different state to, to like obtain an abortion elsewhere. So um, we'll see kind of how that unfolds in the legislature. I know that urge is working really hard to, to fight against that. And a lot of other really great organizations are as well. Um, So those are some of the things that I think are most urgent. So I'm going to go off script here for a second and just ask you when, when, someone introduces a bill like that Mm -hmm. do they truly think that it is i mean it's it is not constitutional so how like why i mean is essentially just kind of posturing or to get votes or to um make some sort of statement or to because they want to waste taxpayer money on some protracted lawsuit i just have never totally understood that i think it's all of those things maybe not the taxpayer thing as much but i mean for the people who i can't remember the names of the rep or senator who introduced these bills but they said it explicitly they introduced explicitly with the hope that it will reach the supreme court and 
and possibly allow for Roe v. Wade to be overturned. So they see it as kind of a uh, uh, sort of an incremental strategy. Yes. Toward, oh, okay. Yes. Wow. Yes. That's really fucking scary. It's really, it, it is really frightening. And, um, you know, ab- like, it's funny, abortion was never like my issue. Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't the the thing that I was most passionate about, but um, yeah, but I think just for, and this is getting into more of like my own process with feminism or even like racial identity, but just, I think that if we're talking about like liberation, you know, like individual liberation or collective liberation or social, social change or any of those things, like having control over your body is kind of like, the core thing, you know, and, and thinking about, um, to use like the woo language, like how do we take up space in the world Mm -hmm. or like, how do we move through space? And, um, a lot of issues that we talk about can kind of be framed in that language of, um, having autonomy over yourself. Um, and, and, you know, sexuality touches like how we're in relationship with other people. I think sexuality is more than just like where you put your, you know, sexual part i can't remember the name for that right now what is that called genitals (laughs) (laughs) i was like is there another new name for it there's always a new name for everything genitals is the word i was looking for i I did know that one yeah (laughs) um yeah i feel like sexuality is you know just how we're in relationship with each other how we care for one another all of those things and so um and so i think it may seem tangential, but I think abortion to me is like really is pretty core to that. Yeah, no, I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, Is there anything else that you would like to share with us just about your development as a feminist? And, you know, does that word mean anything in particular to you? Did you, was there sort of a time in your life when that really became more important to you? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I don't, the word feminist is not like itself is not super important to me. I know a lot of um, black women or femmes who um, use the term womanist mm-hmm. um, because they feel like, you know, feminism can be very white, can be very focused on white women. Like if we say woman and we don't say any other descriptors, people assume that we're talking about white women. Right. Um, and so for that reason, you know, like the womanist movement was kind of created to center um, black women or I don't know if center, but to, to be more inclusive and to as a kind of um, alternative. Um, I, I identify as a queer black woman and um, all of those um, identities are important to me and I experience them all at the same time mm-hmm. everywhere I go. Um, I did not always identify as queer. I did not always, I've always identified as a girl or a woman. Um, I've always known that I was black, but not like really. <laughs> I, um, I, I tell this story about how, um, I joined match.com when I was like 25 and mm-hmm. that's kind of the thing that, helped me to figure out that I was black because there were all these um, men of all races, not just white men um, who were, you know, the way that match worked at that point, like you can, I haven't been on match in a very long time, so I don't know if this is still it, but you can um, indicate like your demographics, like I'm this tall and weigh this much and of this race. And here's who I'm looking for. Like you can kind of profile like Mm. your desired partner. Um, 
but the algorithms weren't sophisticated enough that like if there was somebody who met my criteria, but I didn't meet theirs, I would still see them as an option, if that makes sense. Uh. So I see like white men, men of like South Asian descent, black men who I'm like, you're cute. You've like met these other criteria that I've named. Maybe we should message or whatever. And then I would see like, um, you know, who they were interested in. And they had checked like every racial and ethnic identity except for black women. Wow. Um, And so that kind of, I, you know, I had um, a pretty um, privileged and I, I, I use that in like a neutral kind of like objective sense. Like mm-hmm. my parents both had um, college degrees. One was an engineer. The other was an engineer who later became a math teacher. Um, education was always really valued. I did well in like the U.S. academic environment. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a lot of ways that I didn't experience racism as I understood it. Like I understood racism to be what my parents went through growing up in North Carolina and living through the desegregation of public schools mm-hmm. and all of those things. Um, so, yeah, so I just I didn't understand or see how racism impacted me as an individual. And I think when I began to see I so all of those things happen in the same at the same time, like my um, kind of like racial identity awareness and my awareness of my experience as a woman, because it was tied to my experience as a black woman yeah. specifically. Um, and then the queer thing kind of happened later. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I remember that I used to kind of be like, it's so embarrassing now, like, but I was like, feminism, I don't think that's important, <laughs> but that's not, I don't identify as a feminist. And I, I think that people just don't have, you know, I think I thought of feminists as like women who don't shave their underarms, which is a fine thing to do, or like don't wear bras, which is also a fine thing. But I just thought of like this kind of stereotype, I guess. Yeah, that, that didn't is sort apply of like this kind of surface, you know, yeah. political statements in, in these kind of bracketed areas instead of this kind of more expansive. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, I, I grew up in um in faith communities. Like I grew up in Christianity and um in my early twenties actually worked at a church, an evangelical church. And so like there was no framework for what it meant to be like a feminist in that context. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so, um, but I definitely like in retrospect, I was definitely having like struggles around gender and power and all of those things, but I just didn't have like a language. So I think part of why I love that you're doing this podcast is that it, it seems like it's, you know, trying to, trying to break down, you know, like you were with your kind of like quirky city metaphor. <laughs> feminist town yeah feminist town like sometimes we're in the city and doing all the cliche feminist things and other times we're like out in the woods doing like you know is oh i didn't know that feminism lived out here too like feminism is everywhere that's right feminism is everywhere thank you for acknowledging that i appreciate that (laughs) yeah We are going to talk about what made our feminist hearts sing lately. And um, I have a couple things. So maybe I'll let's should we alternate? I'll go. Yeah, first. you go first. I go. You go. OK, so I um, have a good friend who lives in California and she and I were freshman year roommates in college. And then we were good, fr- really good friends all through school and um, for a long time after school. And then it's not that we fell out of touch or weren't friends anymore, but we just, you know, we lived 
half a country away. She had kids. I was doing other stuff. We just weren't in very close touch. And recently spent a lot of time with her and kind of reconnected in a, a really nice way. It was kind of nice to kind of feel that again with her because it had been a long time. And then she asked me to download this app called Marco Polo. Do you know? I've you never heard of, heard of this. I had never heard of it either. She described it as Snapchat for old people. <laughs> <laughs> I need this then. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, I'm not quite sure that I like that descriptor, but I will do it. And so essentially what it is, is you record, it's, it's, you know, recording and sending a video, um, which you could do many other ways and Mm -hmm. many other platforms, but it's just very, very easy because it's like you press a button and then you press another button and they get the video. I mean, there's no, that's, I can see why it's sort of marketed to to maybe folks of (laughs) a different, there's no way you can, you can't fuck it up. Exactly. (laughs) Um, and it does have some filters and stuff, but it's not, it's not real Snapchatty, and they don't disappear. Uh huh. So sorry, I just was thinking about like what what are the filters that we should have on the Snapchat for old people, <laughs> and it's like bifocals, yes, <laughs> or like a pipe, maybe like a pipe, yes. and like a Sherlock Holmes hat or something. I like it. Yeah, there's the the filtering is fairly minimum minimal. Um, so she has just um, sent me a couple and I, at first I just didn't, I, don't, I didn't quite get it and I didn't know what to say. And then like over the last little while, these messages have just been becoming, they're like audio letters and they're Aww. almost like this little audio, almost like a kind of, I don't know how to describe it. It's not a diary exactly, but like I'll be making oatmeal in the morning and I'll just tell her about you know, this is what I'm doing with my oatmeal and this is what I dreamt about last night and this is what I'm going to do today and this is what I'm thinking about. Da, mm-hmm. da, da, da. And then I got one from her the other day that was like, she was telling me about how she had um, been seeing the same therapist for five years and they decided that their therapy time together oh. was done. And okay. she was telling me about kind of her, you know, her kids were away for the weekend and sort of why she felt like, um, sometimes the being home alone was hard for her and sort of culturally why she had some thoughts about why that was. And I mean, it was just really these very kind of personal, intimate, profound messages that have, that we've started. So like yesterday I, I Marcoed her, I guess <laughs> like, as soon as I woke up in the morning and then like right before I went to bed and it has just been the most lovely thing to experience and I don't know why that medium in particular seems to work for us because we were never people who were very interested in talking on the phone mm-hmm. um and so but yeah these kind of like wandering messages that we then send back and forth and they do kind of feel like letters in a way yeah um, I was gonna say it's like a little it sounds like a little audio pen pal yeah situation. she's like she's yes that's a really good way of putting it she's my audio pen pal and I've been really enjoying it and um yeah so that's that has definitely made my heart sing recently so this podcast is not sponsored by marco polo <laughs> in any way shape or form um but it is i mean it's been kind of cool nice yeah i like that thanks how about you um so a moment feminist moment that made my heart sing so recently i was in birmingham for work and on like a saturday and i <laughs> um 
I like beer. So <laughs> sorry, I am not Brett Kavanaugh. God, I can't believe I just said that. <laughs> um, just anyway, never mind. Um, we would never I, ever think that about you. Thank you. You're like but, the antithesis. No, yeah. So I the I it was a Saturday and I'm in like a town, which I live in Selma. So usually I'm not in like a larger city. And so I'm like, what do I do with my time? It's like I think I'm gonna go like work on my computer and like drink drink a glass of beer or whatever. Yeah. Um by myself because I don't mind being by myself. So I went to this brewery in Birmingham. Um and it was fun. There was like some huge event going on, which I didn't know was going to be happening. So that was fine. I managed to like find a table where I could work. Um, and then um, <laughs> I'm going to tell a joke, <laughs> which I know you're not you're not supposed to intro a joke that way. But there this <laughs> what do you OK, I'm going to tell the joke. What do you call? Uh, what do you call two dozen white men in collared shirts, shorts and boat shoes? Uh, a nightmare. Also that, but a, a murder of bros. Ah! <laughs> That's a really good joke, actually. I posted it to my Instagram story. I and love it. I don't think I got any. I got one response from a friend, but I was like, this is like really great material, y'all. That was um, a genuine laugh. Yeah, because it's a murder of crows in case you didn't know. So it's bros. Anyway, a murder of bros walked in the door and I was just like, damn, I got to go. Like, this is not going to work. But I, I stuck it out because I was like, it, it took me some gumption to like get myself there. Yeah. So I went outside to go smoke a cigarette as I want to do when I'm drinking and when I'm not drinking. Um, and struck up a conversation. Well, I didn't try to strike up a conversation, sat down at a table um, with these two folks that ended up talking to me. Um, a both white, uh, a white gay man, I later came to note, who had the same birthday as me, which was weird. And um, a white woman, straight, married. And um, we were just talking. One of them noticed um, the ring that I was wearing, which is my engagement ring, asked me about it. And I was like, oh, yeah, like this is my partner and I kind of picked it out together and da 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 da. We're getting married in such and such month. Um, and we're just kind of chatting. And I was, you know, referring to my partner and the the guy that I was talking to at at some point, he was like, can I ask a really uh inappropriate I don't know if he said inappropriate but he was kind of dramatic about it and it wasn't like in the end it wasn't that dramatic of a question he's like you keep saying the word partner you know and like what is that and and I knew kind of where he was going like I I could tell he was trying to figure out like what gender is her partner Right. right um and my partner's a man he's actually a white man um although I'm black although I'm identify as queer because that's how being queer works is that you know you can be attracted to people of more than one gender um so anyway I just I always kind of love those I love those moments because a like part of why I say the word partner and don't always use gender identifiers is because I just kind of like to fuck with people (laughs) um like I just I think it's entertaining (laughs) like it's like why does this matter it doesn't you don't really need to know um and I just think like you know, even and, and, you know, as he so he was obviously familiar with the term partner, but he was more, you know, familiar with it in the context of the gay and queer community, whereas people referring to their same sex partners. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just that made my feminist heart sing because I just think that, you know, in the same ways that I am myself still working on trying to deconstruct the gender binary, I also think there's this binary around like attraction and Mm. sexual orientation where it must be either or or you must have like a preference for one gender or um 
you know, if you're in a in a straight relationship or, a, you know, a, a relationship with someone of the opposite gender, then you must like cease to be queer or mm-hmm. cease to seek out queer community. And that's not been true for me at all. I still very much identify as queer and queer community is really important to me. Yeah. Um, being visible as a queer person is difficult, but something that is also important to me. Um, so anyway, that was, that was a moment that made my feminist heart sing. I love that story. And how did they, how did they react to you? They, he was cool about it. It turns out he was like, I had this exact same conversation with my supervisor. She's from California and she kept referring to her partner. And then I realized that his name was Jack. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and so he just, it was, yeah. So it was like two occasions in a short amount of time that just like kind of seemed to blow his mind that mm. you know there were people in straight relationships who were using the term that partner would, that would call their partner their yeah. partner um well my the only other thing i wanted to share is another it's just very small and it's also a kind of a personal experience thing um so i was recently hanging out with someone who is going through a major life transition and we were we decided to do a ritual where we were going to write things down that we wanted to let go of and leave in the past and burn them love it and but we could not get the fire started and it was like this it started just to feel like this like metaphor like this in a bad way of like oh no like you know it's kind of wet outside and did we have the right wood and this and that and I was like I am gonna light this fucking fire I don't (laughs) care and I like became like obsessed and possessed and I was like you know telling people to find kindling and breaking it up and like finding all this paper and you know it would sort of work for a while and then it would burn out and then it would work for a while and then it would burn out. And I was like, I could not let it go. And then it worked. Like it yes. finally started and it finally worked. And I was like, oh, I, I've done it. I'm and then like, it was a new metaphor <laughs> and a good one. <laughs> I felt like the first, I don't know, cave person or whatever, mm-hmm. like I've done it, I've created fire. And so then we could burn our, um, whatever things we were letting go and so that made me i was very i felt very proud of myself because i persevered and i didn't give up and i yes and so it was metaphors all around um (laughs) that particular night so i just thought i would share that because it was it made me feel really good good and i'm glad that um yeah it paved the way to let go of just some bad old shit which like yeah i love a good do that i love a good a good ritual and a good time of transition held in community so i'm glad that you got to support your friend in that way and catharsis and Mm -hmm. you know sometimes you just need a a flame you need to burn shit Mm -hmm. or you need to like throw some glass bottles in a safe (laughs) environment i've done both things that i've done glass bottles and then i've also um like we covered our hands in paint me and a couple of friends and had a canvas and like you just like fling the paint like oh and your arms get really tired i bet that feels good though. <laughs> yeah yeah but you like just yeah get your hands drenched in paint and fling it at the canvas um so options i'm gonna ask you a question it's the dear feminist hot dog section of the podcast and as um the listeners know at this point in season two I have taken the liberty of just starting to ask my guests questions about things that I think they probably have some expertise in and that I have questions about and that I think other people would want to 
want to hear about too. So in this, um, for you, I was thinking about, you know, how we were going to talk about reproductive rights and reproductive justice and your work with urge. So dear feminist hot dog, (laughs) how do you maintain your composure and sanity when you encounter men? I originally wrote people, but for me, it's usually with men. Um, who don't believe in abortion rights. It's easy for me to blow off politicians and pundits because they will say anything for votes and ratings, even though most of them probably believe what they're saying. For some reason, that doesn't get me going in the same way. But when face-to-face with men in particular, I become so enraged that I can barely articulate my position. So I guess my question is twofold. Should I engage at all on the off chance that something I say might break through? That's something that happened with me um, and has changed my perspective on this issue many, many, many years ago when I was a teenager. So I always think about that. And then two, if the answer is yes, engage how do you recommend that i frame my remarks do you have any tricks um do you have any phrases that you use or do you have any tricks that you use for not becoming murderously enraged in that moment (laughs) um this is such a difficult question or like a, a good question i find it difficult as well to engage with people who have points of view that are very different from mine um And in some cases, like when it comes, like especially when it comes to race, um, being a black woman living in Alabama, like it's very easy for me to draw a line of Mm -hmm. like, there are battles that are not for me to fight, Mm -hmm. you know, like Mm -hmm. it is not my job to like even even people who are like on the cusp of, you know, of like racial consciousness or whatever, like it's it's not my job to help them cross that bridge. Yeah. You know, that's just not that's not the work that. that's not work that I'm willing to do at this point in my life. It's work that I've done like a lot growing up in um, predominantly white spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, and at least right now in like my early thirties, I'm taking a break. Um, when it comes to reproductive rights or justice and abortion issue, abortion is an issue in particular. Um, it's hard because I found that people in this in the south in general but especially in this state are pretty entrenched in their points of view Mm. and so i um the so urge the organization um that i currently work for does this great event called abortion positive tour so if you um want to see some images and cool things from that if you search the hashtag abortion positive on instagram or facebook um, you you can see some of um, what that's all about, but it's basically about trying to um, destigmatize conversations on abortion, um, both destigmatize abortion, kind of break this myth that every person who gets an abortion feels a lot of like really deep regret, mm-hmm. or that it's like this very fraught decision. Like for some people, it's a very clear decision, and like for a lot of people, um, the primary emotion that they experience after getting an abortion is relief. Right. You know, and those people need to feel comfortable sharing that you know they shouldn't feel shame or like oh i'm a bad person or like i just made this decision so cavalierly or flippantly it's like no you made the decision that was right for you in that moment um and that's great um and and it's also fine if it was a difficult decision like there's no judgment in either way um and so at the abortion positive tour we talk a lot about um it's so basically is like this 
it's lots of glitter and rainbows and just like fun um, stickers and swag and conversations to educate people about like what it takes to access an abortion in Alabama um, that kind of bounces around some different college campuses. And when we're training um, students who are going to be kind of like staffing this table, we specifically tell them, um, you know, we are not here to argue with, with antis, quote unquote, we call them sometimes Mm -hmm. like anti-choice folks. Um, that's just not the purpose. You know, the purpose is not to engage in debate, um, especially with people who are really entrenched in their points of view. It's it's a waste of time. It's a waste of energy. We risk things like escalating in a way that they just don't need to. Yeah. And so while I was um, on one of the tour stops at UAB, actually, um, <laughs> yeah, this this white 20, 21 year old guy um came up to us and was kind of like, you know, so, so tell me what this is all about, you know? And, um, I just want to hear, and we're like, well, what do you think? Like, do you support abortion acts? He's like, well, I just want to hear what you think first. And it was just clear that he was trying to like bait us, you know? Um, and it was funny because I, like, I, you know, I was like training students, like, here's how you should respond if like an anti-choice person approaches the table. But I'd never like actually been in that situation where I'd had to like use that response. And it worked. The thing that we told them is, you know, to just say like, hey, it sounds like you don't support abortion access. I do. Um, we're probably not going to change each other's minds. And this event is for people who do support abortion access. Um, you're welcome to like, you know, take a bag of chips or, a, a you know, a bottle of water like stuff that we had out on the table um but i i don't think we're going to change each other's minds today and and he like was like oh okay and he left wandered off yeah kind of wandered off into <laughs> what i was i don't know i don't have a into whatever bog he came from <laughs> um, the bro bog yeah <laughs> um so i think so i think it i think it takes i think it is wise for any person especially women or other people who experienced under oppression to like to preserve your energy you know mm-hmm. and um not every battle is worth fighting you know like not every conversation because it's if it's and that's why it's hard adrian because like when you were sharing that story i was like oh my gosh it does happen people have conversations yeah. and come to realizations where they change their opinions on like issues that are really difficult for people to think about um but i'm guessing that probably in that conversation that whoever it was that was speaking to you about that that you probably demonstrated like some intellectual curiosity you know or like i think that we have a sense of um, I think that we have a sense that we have some intuition about whether a person is actually trying to understand our point of view. And I do think that the trade-off is that we, um, if we want people to like listen to understand when they're talking with us about our position, I think that we do. I think abortion is one where I am more willing to listen to understand. Like when it comes to race, if we're like debating whether black people experience oppression in this country like that's one where it's like okay i'm not listening to understand your point of view yeah that is for a white person to do um but yeah so i and so i think i think picking your battles and and like also like if if that's if those are conversations that you're like not ever going to be able to have without feeling like really enraged um, I think that's fine too. Mm. The last thing that I would say is that I would discourage, I, I really try not to use um, like conditional language. 
like it's it's really convenient sometimes to talk about extreme cases like well, what about rape you know or what about um when the parent's life is in danger like that's there there are some people who um that that will be a convincing argument for some people mm-hmm. but i feel like if we as pro choice folks or people who support abortion access when we lead with that argument it it basically sets us up for the idea that there are good abortions and bad abortions, right? right? That there's like kind of like conditional time, like it's a conditional right. Um, And, and I think that's just like kind of dangerous and a slippery slope. It's not for us to decide or police or legislate, like when somebody gets to make a particular decision about their healthcare. Mm. Um, And so that's, it's, it's tempting to do that. Um, but I think leaning on that language of, um, you know, leaning on like scientific language, um, leaning on the language of um, of bodily autonomy, um, I think that's the better way to go. Well, I, that is very helpful to me. <laughs> and I'm thinking Good. back on sort of one in case one scenario in particular, and if I had just. <laughs> If you had only, if known. I had just talked to you earlier, <laughs> I really could have probably avoided a very, very uncomfortable situation for myself, or at least like made it less uncomfortable. So, um, so that was great. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Well, let's do some inducting into the Hot Dog Hall of Fame. What do you Ooh, say? Okay. Yeah. I am. I just recently learned that the book Our Bodies Ourselves. Mm-hmm. is no longer in print publication mm-hmm. at, after I think 48 years later or mm-hmm. something like that. And there, and the organization, the nonprofit that had, had published that book for all these years has become a volunteer run model. And they're kind of, kind of have, I've heard it described in a way that they're, they, they're sort of almost victims of their own success because um, this there was, was this kind of um, very, sort of groundbreaking revolutionary book. And now there's so many different ways that people access information about there's, you know, there's so much more information to access that the book itself is not actually as relevant or necessary anymore. I wouldn't say it's not relevant, but it, you know, people aren't turning to it in the same way. So our bodies ourselves has kind of become more of a, um, has, essentially their website now um, is a celebration of the history of the organization less than because they don't have the funds to continue to kind of be supporting the actual education component of their work. So they've changed, you know, significantly. Mm -hmm. So I didn't, I've not, I've never read the book and I didn't actually know anything about the organization, but that sort of stood out to me. The initial organization that when it very first was published was called the Boston Women's Health Book Collective. This was okay. back in like 1969, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they published, it was essentially like a booklet like um, that was cost 35 cents. Mm-hmm. And it was so popular that then they were able to publish it with like an independent press. And then they then it continued to be so popular that they... Um, decided to publish it with Simon and Schuster, which apparently was very controversial within the Our Bodies Ourselves community because Mm. they considered themselves anti-capitalists. And so publishing with like a big mainstream publishing um, company was like Mm -hmm. very, yeah, caused caused some controversy. So, and so it's funny. I just didn't, 
I it's like this book that I've heard about probably my whole life, but I don't mm-hmm. think I've ever read it. And I just didn't know anything about kind of where it came from. So I did some looking into that. So I don't have like one feminist to induct into the Hall of Fame this mm-hmm. time, but I thought I would just talk about some of the women in the work that originally went into the original version of this book, yeah. um, sort of in honor of the fact that it is now no longer in print. So um, they, so like I said, this it, it was originally a project of the Boston Women's Health Collective. Um, and it was a, written as a collective. So there were at least, a, it depends on what article you read. Some people say 12, some people say 20, you know, anywhere between 12 and 25 uh, feminists who who were not necessarily um, scholars or doctors or anything like, you know, maybe some of them are self-taught. Some of them had, you know, had brought knowledge that they had gleaned through a lot of different life experiences to this research and to this book. And so um, it encouraged women to celebrate their sexuality, including chapters on reproductive rights, lesbian sexuality, sexual independence, and how to maneuver the male dominated healthcare system, which we do talk about on this show a Mm. lot. And that was one of the things that um, I think is was probably pretty radical at the time, but is actually still kind of radical now when you think about it is to, they really focused on how um, the healthcare system is uh, reproduces many of the oppressions that capitalism Mm. um, forces upon people and particularly people of color, people living in poverty, people who don't necessarily have, you know, that access to healthcare was a big deal for them. And they really were real down on, um, the market mm-hmm. being um, being so involved in healthcare. So, like I said, it was published as a booklet, sold for thirty five cents, um, and it had four goals in mind: um, that the personal experiences, um, the the book was a sort of a combination of both of research and also a lot of personal narrative. So that those personal experiences provided a valuable way to understand one's own body beyond the mere facts, um, the sort of nuts and bolts like health um, stuff. Um, So it was more than just something that an expert was telling you. It was like another woman talking to you Mm. about her body in a way that would sort of potentially help you better understand your own. Mm -hmm. Um, Creating an empowering learning experience. Secondly, um, the the learning sort of pedagogical approach of the book meant that, that... um, the readers were better prepared to evaluate the institutions that were supposed to meet their health needs. So it mm-hmm. kind of gave them a framework in which to sort of understand, like, you know, did they really have my best interests? You know, mm-hmm. and, um, and of course, in many cases, the answer is no. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it also, one of the goals was to address the lack, uh, the historic lack of self-knowledge about the female body um, and through greater information, women will have more ability to make proactive choices. And fourth, um, information about one's body is perhaps the most, I'm quoting Wikipedia here, (laughs) is perhaps the most essential kind of education because bodies are the physical bases from which we move out into the world, which actually is kind of similar to what you were saying Mm -hmm. um, some earlier. So without this basic information, women are alienated alienated from their own bodies and, Mm -hmm. and then unnecessarily on unequal footing Mm -hmm. uh, with men. And so it was enormously popular. It was obviously, you know, 
um, a book that you, know, you and I have both heard of and, and seen, but never um, picked up. It was translated into 25 different languages. They eventually released versions focused specifically on pregnancy and childbirth, and then another one on menopause. Um, so I wasn't able to gather a whole as much information as I wanted about the women who actually wrote the book because I was really curious to know, you know, was this was it twenty five white women like mm-hmm. were the were they all middle class like moms like I couldn't get mm-hmm. a lot of that kind of information. There is a picture of some of the original authors. It's not easy to tell, but I think most of them are white. Um, so I imagine there were some omissions and some blind spots. Um, I can't imagine that there weren't. Mm-hmm. And um, But like I said, it was surprisingly intersectional for the times uh, mm-hmm. by from the, from the accounts that I read and the critiques that I read, um, particularly in that they, you know, this is before Roe versus Wade and they were talking explicitly about abortion. They were talking explicitly about LGBTQ experiences, um, about being transgender. Um, they, they talked about masturbation. I mean, it was, and again, the anti-capitalism kind Mm -hmm. of running through the whole thing, um, through that framework. So, um, so the names that I was able to pull out were Wendy Sanford, who wrote the section about abortion, Jane Pincus and Ruth Bell, who wrote about pregnancy and Paula Doris and Esther Rome, who wrote about postpartum depression. Mm. So, um, so thank you to all of them. And thank you to all of the women who contributed to our bodies ourselves. And I just kind of wanted to acknowledge that as kind of, you know, it really was, a, I think, a um, an important piece of educational is important educational tool for a long time. Um, even if it, you know, has not been as in maybe not as widely used lately. Um, mm-hmm. I just want to acknowledge that wisdom and that insight and that courage. Mm-hmm. So collectively our bodies ourselves, I'd like to welcome them into the hall of fame. Awesome. Yeah. Um, my nominee for the, Feminist Hot Dog Hall of Fame? Yes. Okay. Um, is a woman named Raquel Willis. Have you heard of this person? I don't think so. Okay. So um, I, so my current job, I am an organizer. And so um, one of the greatest organizing resources that I've had is in a group called Bold Black Organizing for Leadership and Dignity, um, community of black organizers that are active all throughout the U.S. That's a great acronym, by the yeah. way. I love it. <laughs> yes, yes. It sounds good and it stands for good things. And there are so many bad acronyms out there. That's a It's good really one. true. Um, yeah, so so I know Raquel Willis through Bold. We were part of the same organizing cohort. Um, Raquel is a uh, black trans woman. Um, she grew up in Georgia and um, organized with uh, a transgender advocacy organization um, living in Oak. She was living in Oakland at that time mm-hmm. and now is um, one of, or maybe the chief editor of out magazine Oh wow! Um, lives in New York. And because I have the pleasure of being friends with her on Facebook, um, I, I just, it's been really fun to see the articles that she's written, that she's sharing and seeing other people um, sharing a lot from out magazine. They've had some, um, just some great, articles published recently um one of the ones that she published was um talking about uh how do we you know it was it was specific to um 
a death that happened in like the black hip hip hop community mm. in Los Angeles, um, but is kind of re- like relevant to our broader kind of pop culture trends, um, you know, of I feel like this happens a lot. Like somebody dies and people are sad and people are like expressing their grief. And then someone's like, don't grieve them. They were an asshole to (laughs) trans people or I don't know where that accent came from. Um, But it's like a, it's like a valid question, you know, like how do you, how do you not whitewash someone's um, legacy, Mm -hmm. I guess. Um, And so she just wrote a really insightful article about, um, about that, about this idea that like, and I, I I feel like for me, the 2019 is the year for me of recognizing that like multiple truths can exist at one time. Mm-hmm. And so um, a person and this applies to like celebrities, this applies to other people in our lives. Like grief, I think, is always complicated when we lose someone because relationships are complicated. Um, so this idea that um, someone can you can you can grieve someone and still be honest about um about their shortcomings, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, so yeah, so I would say be watching out for Out Magazine. They are publishing all kinds of really cool stuff and um, really happy for Raquel and her success and think that she would make a wonderful Hall of Famer. Oh, well, I cannot wait. So I'm a huge magazine, like I'm obsessed with magazines. Oh, like, nice. I majored in magazine journalism in grad school and I used to work for a magazine and I'm still like... I just remember like running to the mailbox and getting my sassy magazine when I was like, that tells you I'm dating myself. It tells you how <laughs> old I am. But um, so I would, yes, I will definitely check that out. And thank you. Um, thank you for sharing that. And I, yeah. I'll um, put links on the website so that other folks can um, read her work as well. Awesome. Maui, thank you so much for being on feminist hot dog. This has been a real uh, it's been a real treat for me. I've learned a lot from you. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you for being here. And um, for you listeners, thank you for being here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And sign up for the Feminist Hot Dog Newsletter so you can stay up on all the latest hot dog news. Our music is by Ava Luna and Loyalty Freak Music. And our audio editing is by Square Lightning Design. Thank you for listening. And as always, love yourself and love your buns. Goodbye. This has been a production of NOCO FM.